Hello, you're listening to Film Graves. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We're from the rock and roll band Phil Graves, and we're once again talking about cinema on this podcast. Mm. We're kind of at a bit of a loss because there isn't much cinema to speak of right now. Yeah, God. What was the last one you saw in the cinema? Uh, Baccarat. Nice. Which I'm really glad I did see in the cinema because it was fucking lit. Yeah, very dope film. Mine was uh, Vitalina Varela in the fart dungeon that is ICA2. So fond memories. Yeah, do you look back on Vitalina Varela positively? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a really mad film. Yeah. Looking forward to getting more involved with Pedro Costa's filmography. but We will also do an episode on the three fiction features and maybe some of the other work of Kleber Mendoza Filio because all those films are sick. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, maybe we can preview that a bit more in depth as we go on. But yeah. honestly, all those films are sick. And the short was extremely dope. I sadly haven't checked it out yet. <laughs> Listeners, Neighbouring Sounds and Baccarat are on Mubi currently. And they will be for another like three or four weeks. And Aquarius is on Netflix, making it one of the dozen or so good films on Netflix. Hail Netflix still, though, you know, it's film greats, come on. You know. <laughs> yeah, weird film to find on there, actually. Yes, definitely. I'm going to watch this film about Michael Curtiz making Casablanca this week, I think. I bet it's going to be fucking shit, but I'm down. <laughs> Where's that? It's on Netflix. It's a Netflix original. Just came oh, out. oh, cool. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I saw they added um, The Death of Mr. Lazaretti. Oh, that's a good film. Which is cool. Yeah. I always had this like stupid feeling when like films that I already have on DVD come on streaming services and I'm like, yes, that's the dog. <laughs> it's like it's utterly meaningless. I'm still going to watch it on the DVD instead. But yeah, <laughs> I watched that one years ago in like the mm. worst stream imaginable. So yeah, I'll probably revisit it in crisp Netflix quality. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We've got other stuff coming up as well. We're going to do a proper episode on Jean-Pierre Melville because we've been watching quite a lot of his films. Mm, yeah, yeah. You, you've been an advocate for a long time, but this was my first sort of introduction to him. Very dope. He makes sick films. Sure. Well, so we're going to get Jack from Real Politic on to talk about Costa Gavras's new film, The Adults in the Room, which is a adaptation of a book by Yanis Varoufakis about the EU's treatment of Greece. Yeah, that's going to be great. Yeah. Can't wait. Shout out Jack and uh, shout out Real Politic. Yeah. Coming through with great content. For today, we've got loads of films, and I guess we're going to sort of do a catch up sort of thing and talk about some of the films we've been streaming recently. The last film that we watched together the last time we saw each other yeah oh god suitably apocalyptic viewing choice yeah we were going through your dvds trying to think of something appropriate to watch and you know at first it was like oh i don't want to watch anything too heavy man uh (laughs) you know and then we watched jean-luc goddard's weekend one of the most like nihilistic and savage (laughs) films ever made yeah god I love it. I, I'm a big advocate for JLG. And um, this was the one when I got my BFI under 25 discount. When that started up was when they were doing the full Goddard retrospective. So I just rinsed, rinsed that and saw all these. I hadn't heard of most of those films. But Weekend was definitely one of the most like memorable. Yeah, I mean, it has some, it has some scenes that really stick in your mind. Yeah. And... Just crazy storytelling, crazy 
visuals, you know. I'm not really a big fan of Godard personally. Yeah, you you were a bit cool on him when you watched Yara Lefou. Yeah, it wasn't the first one I'd seen, but I mm. guess I'd sort of been saving it up as a sort of, you know, the testament of Godard's greatness. And, yeah, just... I, I suppose they're quite similar stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In that they they deal with sort of chaotic characters in 60s France, quite philosophical, but, you know, also, as you said, extremely nihilistic. Proper, like, idle bourgeois, just having having a little fun trip, though, you know. I like the sort of espionage, like, I mean, it barely figures in Pierre Olafou, but there is this kind of, like, she's like a terrorist or something. You don't really know. Oh, yeah, very oblique, yeah. Yeah, because you first get to her yard and then it's just full of rifles and stuff. And it's like, oh, cool. That's on to the rest of the film. And then you have fun for an hour and then it like comes back at the end. I love Pierre Olafou. Um, I'd recommend it to any viewers. I think it's definitely like in the when he was working with Coutard, Raoul Coutard, the uh, cinematographer that he did pretty much everything with in the 60s from Breathless up to, I think, Weekend. And then they had some, they sort of reunited in the 80s. Oh, shit. So, Raoul Coutards did all of Goddard's films up to Weekend. That was the last film they collaborated Oh, on. yeah. And he came back to do Passion and First Name Carmen, which I didn't manage to watch when it was on movie. But straight after Weekend, the next film he shot was Zed. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Weekend, though. Yeah, crazy film. What's it? How, how do you summarize it? I guess... I mean, it's a really, really straightforward plot. There's a couple, sort of idle bourgeois couple, develop a plan to kill the parents of one of them for the inheritance. So they travel across France over the course of a weekend to do that. And they get into all kinds of hijinks and escapades on the way. Yeah, it really is about the journey. Maybe the real weekend was the friends they made along the way. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, or the friends they ate along the way. We can go straight to the ending if you like, because the ending is the best, I think. Yeah, I mean, I guess like Pierre Lefeu, it's just a degeneration or mm-hmm. a fulfilment of the sort of bleak iteration of existentialism that it's engaging with. Um, so by the end, they've sort of fallen in with this like revolutionary group in like some woodland. And yeah, it's just the guy gets killed and then... It ends with the girl saying, like, oh, I'll have some more later of, like, a plate that she's been told contains his remains, along with some other animals that we've seen being killed, like, in the last half hour. It's really mental. And you've got that guy playing the the drums in the woods with no, yeah. no accompaniment. <laughs> yeah, um, and, like, their, like, radio code names are, like, Johnny Guitar and Battleship Potemkin and stuff like that hook it to my fucking veins (laughs) the film that he made just before weekend le chinois is a really jogs film one of my favorites which is about a bunch of students like uh at nanterre which was like the new university that was formed where a lot of the like student riots in france like begun because there was like really under equipped for facilities even though they brought in like thousands and thousands of students to teach like new courses and stuff like that but it was so ill-equipped that they they occupied the university anyway it's about a bunch of students who are like on summer holiday they don't have anything to do so they become like maoist revolutionaries and plan a 
plan a political assassination and sit around with like hundreds and hundreds of copies of the red book like arguing about shit they don't know anything about basically yeah that sounds really dope man he was making these films like really in the thick of that historical moment as well and anticipating it as well in an interesting way both those films are made in 67 fair enough i mean i guess 1968 it wasn't like the moment in isolation it was like a cumulative explosion of all those revolutionary or pseudo-revolutionary forces that were cropping up at the time you wouldn't know that if you watched Michel Hazanovicius's Goddard biopic Le Redoutable, which is <laughs> one of my least favourite films to have come out recently. Really, does it sort of skirt the, the politics? Well, it just makes politics into a bit of a joke, really. I mean, I feel like that's what Goddard does in like some of these films, man. Yeah. In a big sure. way. But he engages with it, I guess. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, some of my favourite scenes in Weekend are those like sort of tableaus where people are sort of delivering lectures to the the camera about yeah. like stifling development in Africa or in North America historically. Mm-hmm. Man, there are lots of insights in the film, obviously, but... Classic. Mis- <laughs> yeah. Misspelling the same word over and over again and <laughs> all this kind of stuff. This one, I think, is literally like the class struggle and the main characters are just like in a little village and a bourgeois couple have had a car crash with a guy in a tractor and loads of people are standing around watching and it's just it's mental they're crazy stereotypes and then at the end of the discussion they throw their arms around each other in like solidarity based on like shared anti-semitism it's a fucking mad scene for sure that's like a, a rural farmer and like the the woman right yeah and she's like you, you know, you peasant, you don't even own that tractor. It probably comes from a stinking commune. And he's like, you know, whatever, like, all the things you can say about, like, a bourgeois person who's saying that to someone. <laughs> and I guess Goddard's on both sides. I guess he's, uh, he's backing everyone in that, you know. You could find evidence out of his, like, film writing and the kind of ridiculous shit that he would come out with, like, on the day-to-day to support mm. both both of those arguments i think yeah for sure i mean i feel like a lot of like the academics and like public intellectuals including like filmmakers at the time were quite nebulous in their philosophy mm-hmm. regarding mm-hmm. like political change like even the radicals were like quite conservative as well one of the cool things about goddard was that he was trying to you know develop a political form of cinema Obviously, politics has in cin- been in cinema the whole time, but mm. I think actually making films that are trying to, in no uncertain terms, make a political argument. I mean, Weekend is kind of about, like, you know, it's about all these all these things, like the idea of a weekend, although the weekend does go on for, mm. like, y- years and years by the end of the film, and how all these people, you know, I was reading this Richard Roud book, which actually of the great BFI Cinema One publishing series, hmm. book number one. Number one? Yeah, the first book nice. was on Goddard by uh, Richard Roud. Cool. It's great. Um, talking about Weekend, yeah, he's talking about how all these people, like French society is just basically people working jobs that they don't want just so they can buy a car and like drive around on the weekend, which is pointless, whatever. Yeah. But then what was he doing? Uh. <laughs> but yeah, with this amazing 10-minute panning shot, of a traffic jam where you encounter 
it just gets like progressively more and more grotesque as mm. the camera just pans along a straight mm. road, which is a pretty. I mean, I think about like Kalatozov, like the cranes are flying in I Am Cuba, but like those like long, arty takes that you'd see in all kinds of stuff that we love, like Tarkovsky. Da da da. I think like mm, Goddard mm. being like such a powerful filmmaker in '67, and also so up his own ass that he could actually get away with doing something like that. Uh, it's an outrageous scene, man. That the people are honking their horns the whole time as well. Like it's just a cacophony. It's <laughs> just panning along. It's like an endless traffic jam where there's been like numerous fatalities. And... Yeah. Oh yeah. Ultimately, it, it, they're just all queuing up to get a glimpse at the accident throughout the film there are these scenes where they the main characters just interacting with these like random roadside accidents yeah cars like standing at like weird positions body parts just like strewn all over the place it really like extends that as far as it can into almost like absurd well yeah into complete absurdity i guess yeah for sure very striking as well (laughs) you've got um Jean-Pierre Leo turns up playing San Just, one of the three. Oh yeah, great <laughs> revolutionaries. You got uh, Charlotte Bronte or Emily Bronte, one of the Brontes, mm. just like walking around in the fields. Hilarious. I love how um, the soundtrack keeps on stopping and starting in all the like dialogue scenes. You know. Oh yeah, or just like swell over a part of speech where yeah. it has no business. <laughs> it does. It really establishes that in the first scene. Is it the first scene? Which is like. A, I guess like a therapy session and um, describing like some like sex dream or like fantasy and then the music is yeah just doing that shot in like a crazy way anyway zooming in and out yeah <laughs> yeah and then the music is just like yeah they're swelling oppressively I love it this guy is like really taking the piss yeah but, but arriving at some pretty cool interesting things that watching it in sixty seven you probably would have never seen anything like this before even if you'd seen all of goddard's films yeah man i mean i think it is patently avant-garde and yeah probably really fucked people's shit up but also one of his like you know when people think about the french new wave you could put it next to like a jacques demi film and be like oh both these films have really stylized use of color that's yeah yeah and like some jazz on the soundtrack like ooh, that's cool (laughs) Mm. and then you watch it and it's actually the most savage film ever yeah i don't don't really feel like i did justice to the sort of denouement of the film because the sort of progression that these of these characters and i mean the end is like hilarious and shocking yeah yeah you really need to watch it i guess to sort of get that sense I'd really recommend it, even though we spoiled the whole thing. It's still worth watching, just if you feel... <laughs> when society comes back and you're like, oh, this is fucked. You shouldn't have come back in the first place. Shout out Weekend. I think it's a really, really great film. Yeah, Five Bagger. Definitely <laughs> worth watching. I think Greg would hate it, though. I mean, it is a journey film. So yeah. you could describe it as a spiritual sequel to The Hobbit. <laughs> So, yeah, we've had a lot of time to watch films that, you know, normally you'd have to sort of clear out the schedules. Now there's nothing besides. <laughs> you undertook a particularly ambitious sort of viewing odyssey. What was it? 
Well, well, since we're staying on the French new wave thing, I think I kind of fucked it because I did this like literally as soon as the lockdown began. <laughs> and now I just want to return to it. But um, I picked up Out One by Jacques Rivette uh, on Blu-ray a couple of months ago as if I had some sort of premonition that something like this was going to happen. No, I really, I really did want to watch it. I love Jacques Rivette. Yeah, I know Celine and Julie go boating is one of your faves. I haven't seen any of them. I need to watch it. Definitely. Yeah, you would love that one. That's you'd love this. Yeah. How long is it again? Thirteen hours. Yeah. Is it? You described it as televisual. The, the thirteen-hour version. Is it in episodes, segments? What? Yeah. The... So it's in it's in eight episodes, yeah. two per disc. Mm. So he first released out one Noli Mi Tangere, which like don't touch me, as in like don't edit me, nice or whatever. And then he released Out One Spectre, I think about a year later, but the original Out One was barely ever seen. I think it was only screened twice or three times. Mm. When, when when was that? The 71. He'd made a few films. He made Paris Belongs to Us, which I love, which kind of like Le Chien was, but quite a lot earlier. That was made in the same year as Breathless, actually, 1960. And it's just about a bunch of students like trying to discover a conspiracy, which is also kind of what Out One is about, but in a far more... I don't know, it's fucking epic. Like, there's two groups of actors, and this is like post 68, you know. Um, you really do get the feeling that all these people were like very politically involved and have had like a suffered like a big deflation mm. in terms of they're just they don't know what to do now that the sort of revolutionary possibilities have sort of yeah, now that the government's just full of fucking melts, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all the opposition, yeah. <laughs> So there's one group with a director and they're performing Seven Against Thebes by Aeschylus. Cool. And then there's another group where they don't really have a director and they're performing Prometheus Bound, which may not be by Aeschylus, but they all think it's by Aeschylus. <laughs> and they, the second group are all just like behaving like children, basically. This, this is like one of the ideas of the film is that like, it's just like pointless. Neither of these plays get performed. Both groups like splinter over the course of the film. There's also the suggestion that some members of these two theatrical groups might be part of this like secret society <laughs> that Balzac wrote about right. in a lot of his novels, which is called the Thirteen, where it's just like a it's like a secret society of people who just like have a lot of sort of cultural control. So you encounter people like bankers having meetings on the Seine with like the actor from this and it's like oh why would they be weird cool you've got juliette berto and jean-pierre leo who are both in weekend mm. they're um who are sort of like these two detective characters they're separate juliette berto just goes around cafes like scamming people basically and then she sort of discovers the conspiracy in a really weird stupid way and jean-pierre leo who a lot of people find really annoying not just in this film but in most films this is the guy who played like the kid in the 400 mm. blows and like very famous french actor he plays a mute who starts receiving these letters one of them's uh the hunting of the snark by nice. lewis carroll and then another is balzac and he's like really trying to discover this conspiracy and find out about the 13 he's like going around asking people and no one's telling him shit obviously this sounds mad dude it's really yeah, yeah I, I, I really want to watch it it's it's extremely hard to describe the the thirteen hour. I watched it over about three days, and I was pretty pissed off when it was over. <laughs> not because I was not because I was unsatisfied that they didn't like unmark it, like that it didn't come to some sort of like spotlight like conclusion. But the way that Jacques Rivet 
makes films apart from the nun which is like an extremely normal film but all the ones i've seen there's there's nothing really like them there's extremely long takes and a lot of the film seems to be like entirely unscripted Mm. but it's fun it's fun and pleasurable and intriguing paris is shot really well Mm. is it is it like shot on location or is it like sort of stagey no it's all shot on location like real streets i guess that's one of the main sort of identifiers of like french new wave stuff yeah well of course yeah yeah, yeah. all shot on the street as well it's about living in a city and like there could be you know you feel like something is going on you know man it sounds yeah beguiling i really i really want to watch it you told me that the um the spectre version the edit is tonally very different i haven't seen it but um Listening to there's an episode of the a podcast I like called the Cinephiliacs with uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum, mm. who was in Paris around this time and loves Jacques Rivette, and he's talking about Out One and the difference between Spectre and Noli Me Tangere, um, where Spectre, whereas like yeah, I was I was saying like the 13 hour version was really pleasurable to watch and like I like being with the characters and like this this like discovery, but apparently Spectre is just like totally different this is the like three hour like edited Mm. version or i think it's about four hours where like absolutely nothing makes sense it's got like (laughs) really scary music supposedly i guess if you trim something down from 13 hours to you know three or four obviously especially if it's already sort of mysterious you know it can't retain that much (laughs) coherence can it for sure but I watched it too early. I will get around to watching Spectre soon. Maybe we can watch that together. Yeah, cool. Since I mean, I am going to watch Out One. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch it. <laughs> We're going to have to get involved properly at some point, man. And as I said... Yeah, we like the long ones, don't we? <laughs> we like all the films that uh, Joanna Hogg has been the only person to screen in UK cinemas <laughs> ever. Um, seriously, go on her Anas- yeah, Anas- yeah, Anas- yeah. film club. List. It's, what is it like yeah. Ozar, Balthazar, Satan Tango? <laughs> All the shit you wouldn't see. Yeah. The human condition, this kind of stuff. And yeah, she she screened out one in 2015. Very cool, to be fair. You know what? I, I was actually thinking about our friend Joanna Hogg recently because Kleber Mendonca's films sort of remind me of her work. Mm. But I think, well... We're go- we're gonna get into those properly, so I'll save it. I'll save it. I wish she made a baccarat style. Yeah, film. well, that's the point, isn't it? It's like that's what I need. But yeah, out one. I watched it too early into quarantine, <laughs> but it was a very fun time. You're still listening to Film Grays. Remote Film Grays. Brave New World Film Grays. Yeah, absolutely. This is the new post-cinema Film Grays. All we have is all we have is movie and oh, oh, but you can rent The Invisible Man for like 18 quid or something. <laughs> Both the films that we've already mentioned have featured in um, some lists that I've been posting on Letterboxd. We had Weekend in the Anticipating Societal Collapse <laughs> list. I've also got a Remember Outdoors list with loads of stuff set outdoors and i've also got the list of really long films that you've got time to watch now so follow film grays on letterboxd and uh, 
we'll try and keep some cool lists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can watch all 22 of the films that were set outside. <laughs> Take them off. Sound of music. Is that in there? It's not, it's not that outdoors. It's like, it's like Memories of Murder. It's like outdoors at the start and the end. Sam, what else have you been watching? What's, what's going on now that you can't go to your local <laughs> cinema world? Honestly, I've sort of struggled to, just on a slightly serious note, like I have found it sort of hard to commit to watching films. But, you know, I've watched, I have watched a bunch of shit, to be fair. As, as you said, I watched the Clayton Mendoza filmography. And, yeah, you know, those are definitely worth tracking down. Just on Netflix, though, something I've been wanting to talk about for ages. Well, it was announced earlier in the year that Studio Ghibli's back catalogue, which includes a ton of popcorn classics, would be added to Netflix. And uh, they dropped in three batches, I think it was, over the last couple of months but they're all on there now good news i remember you you were saying that like you'd always look out for studio ghibli films in charity shops because they have such a fixed price and they're like disney style like really controlled when they put yeah them out absolutely on DVD. man if you go into hmv or something they'd be like 12 quid or something um like very fixed and online yeah it's like the disney vault i guess it's a sort of redundant point to make now that they've made their digital move but similarly all of Studio Ghibli's films are now available on Netflix. So, yeah, films like Spirited Away, all the bait ones. My Neighbor Totoro, Princess Mononoke, all of these ones. You've watched a couple of uh, Takahata ones. Yeah, I mean, yeah. when I was growing up, it was the Hayao Miyazaki ones that really I was exposed to and uh, appreciated more. Like, the first one I watched was at my friend Nick Sheedy's house when I was like a wee nipper we watched Princess Mononoke on VHS and like you know that's like a fond film memory for sure hell yeah um but yeah even after that you know as I was getting older Spirited Away I guess was like the real like sort of breakout one I was the first one I saw yeah and I guess that's how you know it was a big like awards film as well but yeah it's how Takahata I guess his most famous early work were Films like Pompoko and My Neighbours the Yamadas. Princess Kaguya is, yeah, as you said, one that I gleefully found in a charity shop a few years ago. And that is just a beautiful, beautiful sort of traditional Japanese folktale drawn in like a fantastic way. Honestly, like I can't recommend it highly enough. It's just an astonishing film. I might even call it my favourite Studio Ghibli film, you know. Yeah. Um, and I watched... Takata's Only Yesterday, um, which is a really, really nice film, man. I, uh, sort of Proustian, like, a uh, young woman is on the train, like, out to the countryside, and then she's just, like, remembering her, like, childhood, and then when she gets there, it's, like, all, like, bare nostalgic. She meets a brad that likes, like, playing Hungarian music in his car. Really weird, but you know what? If I drove a car, I'd be playing fucking Hungarian music in it. <laughs> Blasting the Satan uh, Tango soundtrack throughout <laughs> Rice Lip. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, a lovely film, only yesterday. Is The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness on Netflix? No, it's not, because I was looking at this, and it's, I think it's on Amazon Prime, and you can rent it for like eight quid. I mean, yeah. <laughs> That's one of my favourite documentaries of all time, though, and it was produced when... I think Miyazaki was making The Wind Rises, I think, and Takata was making Princess Kaguya. When I watched it, I hadn't seen 
the third of Princess Kaguya. And I guess for me, it was sort of like secondary to like the, oh, look at the god Miyazaki at work. But I really need to revisit it now that I have like an increased appreciation for both of them as auteurs, you know. It's like a like a Lennon and McCartney or something like that, you know, they're like, uh, they seem to have quite different aims. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think uh, Takata is a way more sort of naturalistic uh, storyteller. Well, I mean, maybe that's contradicted by something like Pompoko. But, you know, Miyazaki is very much into his environmental parables. You watched um, Castle in the Sky, didn't you? I did. Which, was that his first film? Or is it the first, like, Studio Ghibli film? No, Nausicaa was before. Yeah, I really conflate them in my mind because they're basically the same film. <laughs> they're all kind of the same film, man. Like, when I started watching Castle in the Sky, I knew exactly what was going to happen. I knew there was going to be some sort of, like, ecological or, like, environmental bent to it. Yeah. And, you know, you'd have some cool creatures who have, like, taken over, like, a post-human landscape or whatever. Bit of <laughs> magic. I knew, I knew what it was going to be like. And I still loved it. More for the style, I think. Um, there were certain things about it that I didn't really expect. Mostly to do with, like, scale. Um, loads of stuff happens really far away from the, in inverted commas, camera. Um, it reminded me of, like, Lawrence of Arabia or something like that. There's so much empty space in the frame. And it must be sick in the cinema to see something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's all, I guess it's as much about the back. The backgrounds really come into it, man. It's, it's animation, like it's all, a very specific packet. One thing I would say about that documentary is that I, one thing I remember about it is like the attention that Miyazaki pays to how um, like people move. There's one bit where he's like trying to draw someone just like stumbling a bit or like running in like a sort of stumbly way and like it's so specific and like lovingly rendered but yeah in addition to that it's just all like gorgeous to look at like real like every frame of painting shit you know and certainly like i was uh very overpowered by some of the images in castle in the sky in with a true sense of awe that i would have had when i was watching spirited away when i was a kid for the first time or how's moving castle which i loved and that's maybe the only one i saw in the cinema on release I mm. being like... yeah i think i've only seen one in the cinema i saw the my neighbor totoro i think it might have been the 25th anniversary reissue a couple of years ago saw it in shepherd's booth view there were like just like a few like younger couples in there that was a really good screening experience so i would recommend michael leader from little white lies's podcast Ghibliotech. uh where they talk about every Ghibli film. And I listened to the Castle in the Sky one, and it was great. Yeah, cool. I mean, you know, this is just to say, really, that they're on Netflix, and please watch them, you know. We really haven't gone into any detail in analysing them at all. I think they're all worthy of celebration, though, and very rich themes, you know, the environmental shit, the sort of sociological stuff about Japanese life. Very dope. Please, they're on Netflix. I think there are 21 of them, and... It's good to have some good classic films on Netflix. Yeah, for sure. Oh, also, another thing um, on the Ghibli films is that you can watch them in the original Japanese or with dubs on Netflix. So take your pick. It's good to have the option. We watched um, Castle in the Sky in Japanese, but Spirit Away, I feel like the voice acting was pretty good in English. For mm. Oh, yeah, they have like star-studded casts. I switched briefly to um, English when I was watching only yesterday. 
Um, and it's, I think it's like Dev Patel. I seem to remember Howl's Moving Castle was like Christian Bale and Anne Hathaway or something. Um, you know. Oh, yeah, like so uh, the, dark, the Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I guess if you use Netflix, you really can't have missed that these films are on there. But yeah, if you need a nudge to watch them. Here it is. <laughs> Besides the um, the brilliant Studio Ghibli oeuvre on Netflix, is there anything else that's been uh, getting watched on that particular platform? <laughs> well, we had a slight debate about this before we started recording because obviously we only normally talk about films, but I saw this listed on Letterboxd, which means it is technically a film. Kaye put um, Twin Peaks The Return as their best film of the decade, so I think. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, my best film of the decade was The Terror, season one, if anyone's interested. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk for a couple of minutes then about Tiger King, um, the docu documentary yes. series. I haven't finished it yet, Ooh. but, um, you know. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. I, don't, I, I mean, you get the gist. Yeah, apparently they're bringing out another episode next week. Well, just for, for anyone that doesn't know what this, what the Tiger King's about, then it follows a small group of uh, sort of characters spread across America who are involved in um, the sort of large cat industry in various ways. It sort of skirts around the subject of breeding and stuff like that. And it skirts around, it. skirts around everything, man. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I've seen people being like, "Oh, best storytelling of all time," and it's like, "Are you mad?" What about Avengers Endgame, dude? <laughs> I mean, I base, I do feel like they're of the same sort of narrative, discursive quality. This is an extremely scatterbrained, if entertaining, jumping all over the place. The chronology is fucked. I mean, it is it is successful in giving you a flavour of these characters, though. Um, and they very much are our characters, not, like, subjects. Right. <laughs> um, Self-consciously like, so. Yeah, just... It's, everyone in it is bonkers. Yeah. Half of them are on meth. They're all gun-toting. They're all, obviously, extremely litigious. Supposedly... Uh, Joe Exotic is mad racist in real life, but they did that didn't make it into the film. Who'd have thunk it? Yeah. Um. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not exactly Errol Morris. I don't think there's that much critiquing going on. I think it is more about, yeah, the storytelling. It just presents this shit. You know what it reminds me of? Um, The Great Hack, a documentary that seems enamoured with its subject to the point that it sort of limits their critique of the general phenomenon that it's about. I think so. I think so. I think that would. you could also say that about... Uh, on the curve which i do oh, enjoy yeah. but that's a, an area that i take particular interest in <laughs> um yeah for sure for sure it just sort of fetishizes these figures or like by using them as a lens it doesn't expand its view it very much so limits it right it's a pretty horrible place to be i think i was really compelled with it at the start but it's so depressing the like overwhelming like presence of animal abuse which is almost like a structuring absence until it like this is this is what i meant man about like the selective breeding stuff and like these like elements of the 
subculture that seem extremely secondary or tertiary to the the story, which is just like, oh, these people are weird and funny, aren't they? Yeah, um, um, I guess it does. It has a sort of ethnographic quality to it, especially the sort of Oklahoma. But that just makes me feel depressed as well, man. I think. I mean, you got like really sad stuff that goes on. All these people like have really fucked up. They're lives. all very damaged. Yeah, for sure. Apart from the bag of Von. He's alright, seemingly. Oh, he's not alright, he's probably my least favourite one. But he's, Which one's he? The like one with loads of wives? Yeah, that that guy, yeah. The one called Doc, but he's like literally not a doctor of anything. Yeah, classic. Hi, everybody! Doc Sportello, <laughs> all of these. <laughs> Wait, no, he's actually the worst one, mate, because they like found like little big cat bones, you know? <laughs> no, but I'm saying like he's he's the most like sort of privileged one you know he's not like a, a victim of society even carol baskin like the way she met her second husband is pretty harrowing circumstances or whatever where he's just like following her around with a gun this is film Grays on tiger king and i already want to stop talking about it because it's making me feel yeah like i'm done talking about weird it, and sad we've acknowledged its existence and i you know i watched the whole thing i watched it quite soon into the quarantine you know where it's like you see it there and you're like, I'm not going to watch that shit. And then like <laughs> the next day, still wearing like the exact same shit. And you're like, where's that remote at? Just on, in terms of like crazy anthropological looks at bizarre US subcultures. Nice. I want to talk about Nashville. Uh, Robert Altman's. One of the best films ever made i would say yeah i it's been on my list for so long man and you know it was a, i was slightly daunted by its runtime because uh, it's definitely like a bit of a commitment coming up on three hours i think not that long but not out one long but i feel like nashville never drags you know no it's an amazing film it sort of reminds me of the simpsons i was gonna say that as well yeah yeah it has a huge cast of characters lots of recognizable faces and it just follows them all over like a few days in Nashville. They've gathered there or live there um, and are attending like a sort of political rally for like a weird like populist dude. Although he doesn't appear in the film, but his yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. his campaign manager who's like, well, I don't know about all this politics stuff. But yeah, yeah. Like, I'm a I'm... registered I'm a registered Democrat. I can't vote for him either. <laughs> like... It's so scathing, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a scene reminiscent of a Weekend as well, with like a sort of pile up where lots of people are just stuck in the road, and you know, it's a sort of lo locus of exchange and there's frustration. Almost... There's so many like favorite characters and favorite moments. I love Geraldine Chaplin in the bit when she's like going oh my God. when she's like making she's a bbc reporter right or yeah. she says she is and she's going around the like junkyard trying to interview like get to the heart of real america yellow is the color of cow and she's like oh no i can't say that that's fascist and then she's <laughs> like and then she just carries on she has so many mad lines when she meets um during that traffic jam scene, she's, like, trying to interview, like, a hit singer called... God, I can't remember his first name. Like, Mr. Brown. Um, and then she, like, goes into... She, like, manages to get into his, like, trailer while they're stuck in the middle of the road. And, like, there are just, like, loads of, like, black people, like, there. And she's like, oh, this... This Mr. Brown must be a... Ver 
oh, I know what it's like in the South. I know. Oh, he must be a he must be a very good man. And then one of us like, oh yeah, he's real liberal. And they were like, we don't even meet him in that scene. But then like he comes out like at a concert, and obviously it's like a black dude, and like you know, yeah. she's just so blinkered like throughout the whole film. Hilarious performance. I love it. I love yeah. it. Um, Lily Tomlin. Her singing Good. style is so fucked up, man. <laughs> what do you mean? It's like it's like opera or something when she's, <laughs> yeah. you know. I haven't heard any country music that sounds like that ever. Yeah. Like, and well, I like. She's in a gospel band though. No, but the way she sings, yeah, is yeah. fucked. Yeah. <laughs> um, but she has an intro. I mean, so many of these characters just have like quite quotidian uh, sort of narrative strains but they overlap in like interesting ways throughout the film for sure i mean you could compare it to like your man bruegel or something like that quite easily right very much so but like very much so responding to that moment in american political cultural social history it's the it's the bicentennial of america right is kind of when it's set that gets referenced quite a lot just after watergate as well like the vietnam war all these like very clear markers it's mainly about like musical culture in Nashville. So much of it is music. Like I sort of start tuning out if I'm just watching someone singing a song for five minutes in a film. But I find it really entertaining, man. Especially because like half of them are shit and like for sure. Although I like that. Like, I like the, the shittest ones are my favorite. I love the like we to last two hundred years. We got to be doing something right or whatever. It's like... Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's so good, man. I've I've been watching like quite a lot of like international films recently, and I was like, oh, I want to watch something in English, you know, like something still like good, but like. Um, oh, you made a great choice, man. Had to watch it with subs though, because <laughs> you know, there's one. So um, there's a character called Barbara Jean, and she's like a like famous singer, but also like has like a nervous disposition, you know. She'd been, like, hospitalised, but then she's, like, sort of trolleyed out for these performances. And um, there's one bit where she says, It's gonna go off like a fart <laughs> And it sounds like... It's, well, she says, It's gonna go off like a firecracker. But, like, I had to watch it, like, three times, because it sounds like she's saying, It's gonna go off like fuck. It's gonna go off like fuck! <laughs> That's what, like... The the sound design in a lot of these Altman films is crazy. Like, have you seen Mash before? No, man, I need to. Which watch I guess it. was his. Yeah. I think you might be a bit disappointed after watching this one. It's very mean spirited, nasty film, but it's also jokes and like similarly like askance look at a certain facet of American culture. My mum took me to see Nashville when I was really young. Or I was probably like fourteen. Great. And yeah, Altman for me has always been like one of my favourite american filmmakers and then when i started smoking weed i got it on a t completely different level you know because no one makes films <laughs> it's like this guy um i guess this is what i mean by comparing it to the simpsons you know yeah for sure because like there are so many just like weird like situational and like very subtle like ironic moments of humor uh gta i guess could also be a a point of comparison you know yeah i'd also compare it to sort of thomas pinchon i hate to do it because it's no, of like course. an easy easy comparison to make really but I, i'm reading vineland at the moment i think it would have been an influence you know yeah. um v and yeah. that because i guess like people use the word altmanes to just like describe any film with an ensemble cast even though most of his best films like mccabe and mrs miller or the long goodbye are not that at all even when they're more focused and pared down and focusing on only a couple of characters they still have like a really sweeping 
unfocused i guess and it is like some weird shit you know it's like an attention span thing perhaps oh man sorry just one more um yeah, yeah this is such a touching scene when um what's his name the like big country singer who's like a short guy i can't remember anyway his son like manages the guy from the first scene yeah yeah, yeah 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 geraldine chaplin's bbc reporter character is like interviewing his son who like manages his business affairs um at this like shindig and then she's like oh do you ever sing have you ever written he's like i have written one song and then and then he starts singing this like really like heartfelt like nice song and then it's like 30 seconds into it and then like she like sees something in the distance and then it's like oh that's so and so and then just like gets gets up and leaves Fuck. Pretty, it's pretty harsh on the musicians, man. The musicians are like more victimized characters. You think about that character who's on stage at the end after she has that like horrible audition scene in front of all the like old men where they're just like making her strip and stuff. Uh, yeah. But then another character who's like been like floating around extremely peripherally, like trying to like make music throughout the whole thing that we like haven't seen do anything is the one that like jumps up and is like takes the mic and like leads the song at the end you know it is about how like opportunistic and like lucky these people have to be and yeah i mean the end is an astonishing set piece i don't really actually want to talk about it though because i really think people should watch this film and the end is yeah really deep great use of a frame as well especially when it's uh yeah you know between two or three characters so much and then it really pulls out and you could probably mm. see everyone that you've seen in the film in that shot <laughs> yeah oh man it's a real masterpiece and i yeah i need to get involved with more of his films not a filmmaker i have any sort of relationship with i know mash is like obviously very famous but i would love to one day look at gosford park versus le regle de jeu that's probably one of the more similar ones to nashville but it's set in like an english country manner like upstairs downstairs murder mystery thing cool shout out altman yeah nashville's great it's on amazon prime that's where i watched it if anyone wants to get involved nice I'm sure you can find it elsewhere one of the only films i've watched in my adult life with a director's commentary <laughs> nice. which was a really good time actually he's a joker we've watched other films in this time but we don't want to blow the load you know yeah for sure i mean you can see what we've watched on our personal letterbox accounts if you're so inclined um and you can see which of us has a more refined taste i'm just gonna sp spoil the game and say i watched birds of prey and beetlejuice in the last couple of days <laughs> I, I was watching the new uh andrew cotting film today oh is that the whale yeah yeah. What's it called? The Whalebone. The Whalebone box. You'd really like it, I think. Yeah, I'm gonna check it out. We will. Uh, we'll have a look at it. Uh, any final comments you'd like to make? Yeah. Speaking of comments, R.I.P. One of my favorite film magazines. Two of my favorite film magazines. Cahiers closed about two months ago in non mm. non coronavirus related circumstances, mm. and Film Comment has just ceased publication as well. Yeah. Announced in quite a brutal way. As part of a sort of press release from Film at Lincoln Centre, where, yeah, it was just basically a footnote in their announcement about sort of what they're doing in general in relation to coronavirus. Fuck, I've said it. You're trying to not say it. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a real shame. Yeah. One of my favourite film podcasts as well. Yeah, the podcast appears to uh, still be going. They've been doing some really cool... They've been, like, interviewing critics 
episode by episode like they did one with like Nick Pinkerton did one with like uh, Ella Bittencourt recently which was great and like programmers and stuff just talking to like them about what they've chosen to watch which is a fun listen yeah it's a real shame lots of talented writers I'm sure they'll find a you know find their footing yeah the right the writers aren't going anywhere I guess yeah. um the, the film comment website is fantastic I've got to say um their archive is really really thorough online so if you want to look up all the classic cool. critics that we like yeah i'll have to get involved yeah. yeah i've never even one thing that i have enjoyed me and steph joined the tufnell park film club a couple of months ago um because mm. we live quite near the pub where it's uh done it's run by two guys nigel and wayne who are true cinephiles and they've in the screenings that i've been to there been to see some really cool stuff stuff that i'd never heard of before i saw this film the little fugitive which is amazing the last film we saw there was rome open city but they've now moved their film club uh, to a digital sort of thing where everyone's watching the films together on a on a Tuesday night, which is really nice. Yeah, so they did uh, the Seventh Seal last week. They did Umberto D the week before, and tomorrow they are screening The Purple Rose of Cairo by Woody Allen, which is one of his best films. Sorry, folks. I'd recommend it. You don't need to live in the local area to get involved. You could you could join the Tuffnell Park Film Club and live in New Zealand and still have a good time. There's great programming and. They do nice intros and stuff. Me and a couple of friends are also going to start doing something similar to that. The first film me and Oli and Sora and Francis are all going to watch together is Maurice Piala's Under the Sun of Satan. And then we might have a sort of Discord or like some sort of recorded chat about it where we can discuss. So if you want to get involved, just uh, give me a shout. I'm Emmett. Uh? <laughs> I just said I'm Emmett. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm Sam. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Film Grace. Yeah, I've really enjoyed this. Uh, <laughs> see you soon. Hear you yeah, soon. Nice one, man. See. Yeah, well done. Right, well, well played. Speak yeah. to you soon. Speak to you soon. Bye. Nice one. The price of bread may worry some. It don't worry me. The tax relief may never come it don't worry me economy's depressed not me my spirit's high as it can be and you may say that I ain't free it don't worry me it don't worry me it don't worry me you may say that I ain't free Say this train don't give out rides, don't worry me. Oh, world is taking sides, don't worry me. Cause in my empire, life is sweet. Just ask any bow you meet, life may be a one way street, don't worry me. No, it don't, don't worry me. Don't worry me, you may stay alive free, don't worry me.